1 John chapter 5. So today we will conclude our journey through the book of 1 John. So just to, to recap very briefly, this book was written to the church in opposition to false teachers, teaching false things about who Jesus is. So John was addressing uh, false teachers that fall into a, a category or a label of Gnostics. Gnostics, it's just a Greek word. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. So Gnostics were people who basically worshipped knowledge. And they believed that there was secret knowledge from a supreme source that certain people, special people, were able to receive. And it made them just that, special. Which meant that they saw themselves above other people, better than other people. And so John is writing this letter in opposition. These false teachers taught that Jesus was just one of many special men who could have a special anointing called the Christ consciousness. And that the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and the Christ left Jesus before his crucifixion. But other than that, Jesus was no different than anybody else. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is not one of many ways. Jesus wasn't just a special teacher or a powerful prophet or a special man. He was all of that, but he was much more than that. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God the eternal Son of God, the only Lord, the only Savior, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the only way to the Father. And that, those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus about himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. And so John is writing to the church, and he's opposing these false teachers. Guess where they were? They were in the church. These false teachers professed to believe in Jesus. They talked about Jesus. They taught about Jesus. But they didn't teach correctly about Jesus. They didn't teach what the Bible taught about Jesus. And they certainly didn't teach what Jesus himself said about who he was. And don't think that the problem of false teachers was just something that existed in the church 2,000 years ago. We have the very same problem today. And there are false teachers today who stand behind pulpits in churches. And there are false teachers out there who claim to believe in Jesus, who are telling lies about who Jesus is. And unfortunately, there are many people who follow those false teachings. So what is the solution? Well, John said the solution is we preach the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We stand in opposition of the lie and proclaim the truth. And that's what we do. That's what we are to do as the church. And throughout this letter, John draws a distinction between those who just believe in a Jesus and those who believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And that's who we proclaim today. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would 
that you would today by your Holy Spirit, dwelling in each one of us who are born of God, that you would open our eyes and open our understanding. And as we break open your word, as we read your word and see your word and hear your word, that you would transform us, that you would conform us in greater measure to Christ himself, that we would be a people, a people of the truth, a people in the truth, a people not afraid to stand up and proclaim the truth. For it is only the truth that will set men free. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal your truth to us today and change and transform us that we would be less conformed to this world and transformed by the renewing of our mind. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Four little verses, and we're going to end our journey through 1 John. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever is born of God does not sin. The opening words of verse 18. To be born of God, what does that mean? To be born of God is to be born again from above. Jesus encounters Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And he says, teacher, we know that you are from God. Jesus immediately says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says, don't marvel that I say one must be born again, for that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Whoever is born of God is born of the Spirit, born again from above by His Spirit and His grace. It is to be made a new creation in Christ. It is to have Christ formed in you and to become a partaker of the divine nature by God's grace through faith. The statement, whoever is born of God does not sin, listen very closely, does not mean whoever is born of God lives without sin. In fact, in this very letter, toward the beginning of it, John says, whoever says that he has no sin is a liar. But wait a minute. John just said, whoever is born of God does not sin. Don't worry, the Bible does not contradict itself. Whoever is born of God does not sin, does not mean they live without sin. It means whoever is born of God does not live in sin. Or we could say it like this, whoever is born of God 
will still sin, but he will not continue to make sin the practice of his life. His desire is to live free from sin, because in Jesus Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. When you read Romans 6, and we're going through Romans on Wednesday night, you know that Paul says, don't present your members as slaves to sin, but present your members as slaves to righteousness unto God. Can you present your members to sin? Absolutely, you can. But if you're born of God, why would you desire to do that? Why would you consistently practice a lifestyle of presenting your members to sin? Well, John says, if you're born of God, you won't do that. It doesn't mean you can't sin. It means you don't want to live in sin any longer. Our desire is to live free from sin as sin no longer has dominion over our, our life now that we are in Christ. Whoever is born of God does not continue in sin. Then John says, whoever is born of God keeps himself. Whoever is born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The perseverance of the saints. So we believe, we are, we are a congregation who believes in the Reformed faith. We believe that we have the assurance of salvation. Or we believe in the perseverance of the saints. But the perseverance of the saints is secured by the grace of God. We're not keeping ourselves in that way. It is God in His grace who keeps us. Having said that, this word keep in this verse means to keep safe against loss or injury. To keep in view. To keep an eye. You know, it's like if you're, if you're somewhere and you've got your computer and uh, you... you Ask the person, would you keep an eye on this while I run real quick? Hopefully it's someone you trust, right? Keep an eye on it. Why? Keep an eye on it so someone doesn't come and take it. That's what this word keep means here. To keep safe against loss or injury. To keep in view. To guard. To protect. To keep safe. Whoever is born of God guards against the wicked one. And the wicked one does not touch him. Whoever is born of God is to diligently keep himself in a lifestyle or practice of holiness. To keep yourself is to guard against the wicked one coming and stealing, taking. What can wickedness take from us? It can steal our joy. It can Steal our peace. It can, it can cause wrath and anger to rise up in us. These are things that we're to guard against. Don't let the wicked one rob you of your peace, to rob you of your joy, to rob you of love. Guard yourself. Keep yourself. And Keep an eye on these things that you're not allowing the temptation of the world and the things that pull on us to cause us to one day wake up and realize, man, my peace is gone, my joy is gone. I'm stressed out, I'm worried, I'm in fear. 
This has happened to a lot of people in the last couple of years. It's happened to a lot of Christians. And God says, no, don't let that happen. There's no pandemic. There's no circumstance in the world. There's no personal or world circumstance that should cause you to lose your peace in God, your joy in God, because our joy in Him is not dependent upon our circumstances. The joy of the Lord is our strength in the midst of all of our circumstances. Whoever is born of God is to diligently keep himself in a lifestyle or a practice of holiness. Peter described it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. Peter writes, giving diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, add these things to your faith. Grow in these things. Increase in these things. That's what it means to keep yourself. You're guarding against the loss, the drain that the world wants to bring to your faith. And and not just guarding against the loss, but you're adding to, you're bringing an increase by the grace of God because your focus is not what's happening in the world. Your eyes are fixed on Jesus. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. We make our call and election sure as we keep ourselves in right relationship to God. And, as John has repeatedly reminded us throughout his letter here, in right relationship to one another. Because if we're not in right relationship with one another, John says you're not in right relationship with God. And you can think all day long you're in right relationship with Him, but if you hate your brother, the love of God is not in you. So right relationship with God is always going to manifest in right relationships with one another. We keep ourselves set apart for God's service. We present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which Paul says is our reasonable or rational service. Through the power of a new life in Christ, we keep ourselves pure, 1 Timothy 5.22, and we keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, Jude 21. For whoever is born of God keeps himself, guards himself, watches over himself. Then John follows that immediately with, and the wicked one does not touch him. So whoever is born of God, the wicked one does not touch him. So as we saw above, we're to add to our faith in keeping ourselves. And we guard against loss that would be inflicted upon us by the wicked one. And we certainly do this personally, but I want to remind you 
that we're not just called to a personal relationship with God. In fact, I believe that in our modern times, we have put way too much emphasis on our personal relationship with God, so much so that we have excluded the corporate relationship that God calls us into. In fact, if you, and this is why we encourage you to, to do the Bible reading challenge, which means in nine months you're going to read the entire Bible, then in the three months of summer you're going to read the New Testament, then when fall starts again you're going to read the entire Bible, and hopefully you'll do that for the rest of your life, which means every year you're going to read the Bible once, and you're going to read the New Testament twice. Well, why is that important? Well, I believe it's important because it's God's Word. But also, you cannot read the Bible and look at the Scripture and see God put an emphasis just on a personal relationship. In fact, throughout the Scripture, the emphasis that God puts on our relationship with Him is in the context of a corporate relationship because we are the body of Christ. And the Bible gives us this picture graphically. Paul does it in Romans. He does it in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about us being compared to parts of our body, fingers and toes and, and ears and mouths and nose. And we don't focus on one particular member of the body all of those members make up the whole body. And so when we talk about keeping ourselves and the wicked one not touching us, we certainly do this personally, but we never forget that we're part of a corporate body. Locally, right here, Christ Fellowship Church, and in our community, but also universally. This is what it means, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. We're not saying we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. We believe the Roman Catholic Church is just part of the Catholic Church, the universal church. I tell people we're more Catholic than the Catholics because if you come here and you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you, you proclaim yourself to be part of the body of Christ, you can come to this table and you can eat the bread and drink the cup unhindered because you're part of the body. You don't have to be a member of a certain particular denomination to come to the table. You have to be a member of the body of Christ. And so when we talk about the body, it's not just our personal relationship with Jesus. It's our corporate relationship from the local expression of the local church to the universal expression of the church throughout the ages, world without end until Jesus comes back. In keeping ourselves, we are also helping to keep our brothers and our sisters. When we keep ourselves, we are guarding the church against loss. We're guarding the church, the greater body. Whoever is born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. More accurately, the wicked one does not lay hold of him to bring him under his power, for he has no power over the one born of God who keeps himself. The enemy has no power over those born of God who keep themselves because we give him no place. Paul instructs us in Ephesians 4.27 to give no place to the devil. John writes in 1 John 4.4, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 
the world does not touch us or the wicked one does not touch us because the greater one is dwelling in us. And whoever is born of God keeps himself. This does not mean that the wicked one cannot tempt us, buffet us, afflict us, or grieve us. It means he may never touch our life. And that does not mean we cannot experience death, physical death, at the hand of our enemies. It happens all the time. It's happening right now in various parts of the world. John is not saying the enemy can never take your life. But know this, if the enemy or our enemies ever took our life, it would not be without God allowing that to take place. The devil is not out of God's control. God is the sovereign in control of everything. And we see throughout Scripture and we see throughout church history that there are men and women who are, who are martyred for their faith. Their witness for Christ costs them their life. And God calls that precious. Precious in the sight of God are the death of His saints. It means, what this means is not that we can't experience physical death at the hand of our enemies. It means the wicked one cannot inflict upon us eternal loss. Your life, my life, in this physical body is temporal. What the enemy can't do, he may be able to steal our temporal life because God allowed us to experience that martyrdom, but he cannot inflict upon us an eternal loss, which is called the second death. John's encouragement here is that we need not fear the wicked one or even death. As we keep ourselves in Christ by God's grace, we can be sure the wicked one, even if allowed to kill our body, may never touch our soul and our spirit. Jesus is clear. We are not to fear death, but rather we are to fear God. Now listen to Matthew 10, 28. And understand what Jesus is implying here. These, this is the words of Jesus, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That statement by Jesus tells us that there are people who will die because of their faith. But don't fear that because they have no power over your soul. Fear God who not only has power over your body, but over your soul as well. The scripture teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy understanding, Proverbs 9.10. Wisdom and understanding lead us to the love of God and holiness and assurance of eternal life. The fear of the Lord leads us to the love of God. It leads us to the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, and the assurance of eternal life. Though the wicked one is real, and there is real wickedness in the world, all who are born of God have no reason to fear. Whoever is born of God is secure in him. The wicked one cannot inflict eternal loss upon those born of God. 
Those who belong to Jesus, who keep themselves, will never be touched by what the Bible calls the second death. Only those belonging to the wicked one will experience the second death, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. The second death is described for us in the book of Revelation. Now, if there's a second death, what does that mean? There's a first death. It's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. We're going to all experience the first death. But we will not all experience the second death. Well, who gets to experience that? Well, the Bible tells us, Revelation 2.11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This verse is from the letter to the church at Smyrna. It was getting ready to be heavily persecuted. And when Jesus dictates this letter to John, Jesus informs these faithful believers that the devil is coming, the wicked one, and he's about to throw some of them into prison to be tested. And he says, be faithful until death. Which meant that some of those thrown into prison by the devil would not come out of prison walking on their two legs. They would be carried out. He who overcomes is he who keeps himself in the midst of trial and tribulation and temptation that comes to us just simply by living in this world. Even until death, we are to remain faithful. We are to keep ourselves. It is the grace of God. It is in that grace that we are able to keep ourselves. And I don't want you to ever forget that. But it doesn't relieve us. God's grace does not relieve us of our responsibility. He who overcomes is the one who knows his own sin, who knows his own weakness, and in reliance upon God's grace, falls upon the mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. He who overcomes knows he is washed clean by the blood of Christ. Therefore, he lives faithfully in God's grace. He who overcomes who keeps himself, does not fear the wicked one, but knows that he is beyond his reach, sheltered in Christ. It's mentioned again in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, or how do we understand this? Does not live a lifestyle of practicing sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. He lives a lifestyle of righteousness, and the wicked one does not touch him. These are all those written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8, in other words, describes those not found in the book of life. It describes those who make a practice of sinning. These are not born of God. 
And they have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Very often, we don't like to talk about these things from our pulpits because it makes people uncomfortable. But yet, it's in the Scripture. You know why it's in the Scripture? Because if the truth of God's Word makes us uncomfortable in our sin, then that's good. Because if, if the truth of God's Word is making us uncomfortable in our sin, the good news there is that there is a measure of conviction within you. And what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to turn to Jesus, repent of your sin, and ask Him to forgive you. And stop living a lifestyle of practicing sin. The Scripture is clear. In Christ, we have no reason to fear death, as physical death has no power to separate us from God. All who belong to Christ are written in the book of life, and the second death has no power over them. These are born of God and keep themselves, and the wicked one does not touch them. If you are in Christ right now, know that you are born of God, and so keep yourself. And rest assured that the wicked one does not touch you, for you are sheltered in his grace. Then in the very next verse, verse 19, he says, Whoever is born of God knows that they are of God. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that we are of God because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you find yourself in sin and you're convicted of that sin, never forget that's a good thing. That's the Spirit of God in you trying to bring you back to the way of righteousness, the path of righteousness for His namesake. Don't resist that. Go with God. Run with God back to the path of righteousness for the sake of Jesus. Throughout John's letter, he's giving the believers assurance that we can know we are of God, even though the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. We were once sinners, but we no longer live in sin. In Christ, we are now of God. Every human being bears the image of God, but every human being is not a child of God. You hear people say this all the time, we're all children of God. No, we're not. There's nowhere in the Bible it teaches that. Nowhere. I challenge you to find it and bring that verse to me and I'll, I'll change what I preach, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible says we all bear the image of God because we're all created in His image. That is far different having the fingerprint of our maker on us through creation than saying we are all children of God. Even at creation, at the fall, in the garden, in Genesis 3, you, you see that God brings a distinction between the seed of the woman, who ultimately is Christ, and all those who are in Christ, and the seed of the serpent. I'll put enmity between her seed and and your seed. What do you have there? you got two seeds. Her seed, your seed. They all bear the image of God, but they're not all children of God. And even Jesus in John 8 
tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. That's why you can't hear me. That's why you won't receive what I have to say. And that is the condition of everyone in the world who is not born of God. At the fall, the earth and everything in it fell into sin and death. And the only hope was the promised seed who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. And John reminds us that is exactly why the Son of God was manifest. First John 3.8, He who sins is of the devil, or he who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And here's the good news. And so he was manifest, and so he did destroy the works of the devil. Now we can know, now we can know that we are of God. Now we are to advance his kingdom in all the world. Yes, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but the kingdom of God has come. And his kingdom is growing and advancing. And the promise of God is that the increase of his government and peace shall have no end. Isaiah 9-7. Don't ever think for one moment that the gospel does not work, is not working, and will continue to work until Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth. Never believe for one moment, no matter what, the media says, no matter what the headlines say, no matter what you see happening around you, even if the world crumbles all around you, never believe for one moment that the increase of his government and peace is not still taking place because it is. And we are so guilty of looking at life and looking at the world in micro pictures. It's just like watching a a movie, and if you could stop that movie and see the split second of that scene, you can't understand the whole story by looking at that split second of that scene. In fact, you may look at that, and it may give you a completely contrary reality to what's happening there. You know, it's kind of like when someone takes a picture of you, and you, you're getting ready to put a big bite in your mouth, and you've got your mouth open, but they snap the picture... And then when you look at it, it's like, what were you mad about? Oh, I wasn't mad about anything. I was fixing to take a big bite, but they just snapped the picture at the wrong time. Well, we tend to look at life in snapshots, and it gives us the wrong understanding of what's actually happening. We need to understand that God has a plan. God has a purpose. He is the author of salvation. He's writing his story. Don't judge his story by the split-second image that you see this is why we read the Word. This is why we should know history. Because if you go back and you look at history, there is no one in their right mind that cannot say this world is much a much better place today than it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Do you know what we'd all be doing in here if we didn't have electricity? We, we wouldn't be able to read without, unless we had our little candles by us. And we'd all be sweating because it would be hot in here. Because there would be no climate control. Think about the world we live in. Today you're going to go home and you're going to eat lunch. And you're either going to get it out of your refrigerator already prepared or you're going to have all the ingredients right there or you're just going to go to a restaurant and tell somebody, oh, I think I feel like eating this today and they're going to bring that to you. 
Do you know how contrary that is to the vast majority of human history? We are so used to the diversity and the blessing we take it for granted. Should be in my class when we taught about daily life in the, in the dark ages. There was no diversity. There, there was barely even any food, much less a diversity of food. What I'm saying is we are blessed, and we are blessed because the gospel works, because the increase of his government and peace has not stopped, and it will not stop. So take heart and be of good cheer, church. Don't listen to the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy and the images they choose for you to see because they're trying to shape your mindset. You let the Word of God shape your mind. You let the Word of God determine how you view the world. The world and all those not born of God lie under the sway of the wicked one. That is true. But Jesus has come. His kingdom has come. And the Bible gives us a promise that the knowledge of the glory of God will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world may lay under the sway of the wicked one, but Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Thus he has commanded us with a promise to go therefore and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And here's the promise. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus has defeated the devil. He has destroyed his works. He has commanded us, his children, to go and proclaim his kingdom through the gospel that men may know him. Whoever is born of God knows him. But they have to be born first. And there is no new birth apart from the gospel. Whoever is born of God knows the true God and eternal life. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son, has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, that we may know that we are in Him. I hope you know today that He is true, and I hope you know today that you are in Him. And if you don't know that, then call upon His name. He will save you. John is opposing the lie of false teachers concerning Jesus. Jesus was more than this special man with a special anointing. John is declaring that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But even more, Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Gnosticism then and now, it still exists. And all the current New Age mysticism, as well as most of the ecumenical movement today, worldwide, teaches that Jesus is one of many ways the lie is that whatever way you choose, if you are sincerely seeking enlightenment, you will be saved. Let me tell you, church, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Unfortunately, there are movements in Christendom that were birthed out of truth and a passion and a zeal for the gospel who have fallen away and gone the way of this Gnosticism. 
and this mysticism. And you have Christian pastors and teachers who get up and teach people that if you believe in Jesus, great, but there's many other paths that lead to God. Well, I'm going to tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. In no way, in no shape, in no form. Jesus Christ is not one of many. He is the one and only. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life and light leading to salvation. Whoever is born of God knows that Jesus Christ has come. He is the Word made flesh and has given us understanding as He has given us His Holy Spirit. His Spirit teaches us, leads us, guides us into truth. Jesus is the truth. Whoever is born of God knows Him who is true. For all who are born of God know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those born of God also know that they are in Him, in Him who is true. Jesus is not just with you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus is not a lucky charm you carry with you and then leave when you don't want Him to be with you. You are either in Him or you are not in Him. He is either in you or He is not in you. And if you are born of God, then you are in Him and He is in you. And He is the only true God and eternal life. Last verse. Whoever is born of God keeps himself from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Little children, here is the term of affection and endearment John uses in his letter. He's writing to his little children, birth through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just his dear children, but most importantly, the dear children of God. John is writing this letter to the believers in Ephesus who are under intense persecution, who are being deceived by these false teachers. And John was responsible for birthing them. He's ending his letter with the plea from his heart and from the Spirit of God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John is reminding the believers as children of God of their responsibility to remain in the love of God. The word keep in this verse means to guard as in preventing escape. Keep before in verse 18 was to keep someone from taking this is to keep someone from running away. So when you put someone in prison, you keep them there so they can't escape. This is what this word is picturing for us. It's preventing escape. The picture is to keep ourselves from running after idols or anything that would undermine our love and worship of God. In this, we are not guarding against something being taken from us, we are guarding against us being taken with something and running to that. An idol is a false god. It's anything that usurps the worship and devotion that is due only to the true and living God. What we love most is what we idolize. It's what we pursue. And what we idolize is what we become like. We are to be like Christ. Therefore, we are to keep ourselves from idols. People may become idols, things may become idols, activities for pleasure or for work may become idols. Anything we love and devote ourselves to above God is an idol. To keep from going after idols, 
to keep ourselves, we go to the Word for truth and transparency. Remember, the Word is like a mirror. It shows us our true condition. And in that transparent moment, when we see our condition is not in line with God and His will, we repent and we trust in God's forgiveness. We go to the Word in prayer to commune, to confess, and to confidently ask of Him. Remember, John says in this letter, with confidence we can ask of Him. To keep ourselves from idols, we assemble together, considering one another, provoking one another to love and good works. This gathering, this assembly, keeps us from idols. To keep ourselves from idols, we keep ourselves in the love of God. As we love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And we love one another as He has loved us. We keep ourselves from straying after idols as we do that. In the love of God, we keep ourselves from idols as the Lord remains the object of our devoted worship. And so we come to the end of this powerful little book we call 1 John. And John ends it with those words, little children, keep yourself from idols. Worship the one we have bore witness to, the one we handled, the one we saw, the one we walked with, the Word made flesh that dwelt among us. The one true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I pray that is who you worship. We come to the table each week and we proclaim that name. We proclaim His body. We proclaim His blood. It is a table of thanksgiving and we are thanking God for the grace provided for us in Jesus Christ that gives us the ability, the grace to keep ourselves. The grace to know that we are in Him and that He is in us. The grace to know that He is the one true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ. As you trust in Jesus, as you count yourself a member of the covenant, a member of His body, young and old, welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. In the course of studying the letter of 1 John, I want us to hear the heart of the Apostle John and, <coughs> excuse me, and the charge given us by the Holy Spirit through his words. John wrote these things that our joy would be full. We are charged to be joyful people. John wrote these things that we may not sin. We are charged to be holy people. We are charged to love Him, to obey Him, to walk as He walked, and so know that we know Him and that we are in Him. John wrote these things. He wrote to the believers because they know the truth and that no lie is of the truth. We are charged to be a people committed to and courageous in the truth. What we believe and how we live reveals our commitment to the truth. John wrote these things that we would love as God loves. And we are charged to love one another because God is love. 
And John wrote these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in His name. We are charged to be a people boldly confident in every aspect of our relationship to God as we continue to trust in the name of the only Lord, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.